Hello and welcome to The Production Pod, a place where we meet and talk all things creative production from TV broadcasts, commercial and film, a place where we unite with industry professionals. I'm Craig Reeves and I've worked in the world of post-production since being introduced to the industry back in 2006. I've built since with my business producing partner Danny Jones a virtual post-production facility named Pickled. But less about me and more about the person I'm going to introduce you to, Mr. David O'Brien, a post-supervisor originally from Ireland and now working in the UK with credits spanning many BBC and ITV primetime dramas. Nice to meet you, Craig. Oh, no. Nice to see you, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to see you, to meet you too. Uh, Yeah, so, well, we we met in Ireland uh, back in the days of Brown Bag Films uh, in Smithfields. It was a little bit different, wasn't it? You were actually working in Dublin as opposed to the UK, and I I was um, from Dublin working there. We met in uh, Brown Bag. You came over to work as a flame on on, it. Peter Rabbit, wasn't it? It was an animated series for Nickelodeon. That's right. I was on the night shift and basically just got handed the keys on day one. <laughs> they said, Here, here's the alarm code. <laughs> with, the, with the Disney uh, crowd now, they're a little bit more um, controlled and who they let in and out. But at the time, it seems very, very easy, wasn't it? Uh, just come in, there's your keys, go do some work. There's a lot to get. Yeah, 52 episodes. It was just one show that we were working on. But uh, I don't think, I think I was probably only there about. I was six months myself when you joined and okay. it was interesting. It was my first post-production role as a post-super in, in an animated series or a preschool children's TV series, which probably wasn't really my background. I'd, I'd just come back from Australia where I'd been working as a post-production consultant in Australia, which really was just drinking beers with creatives um, in Melbourne, which was was nice, but the heat was getting to me um, quite literally. It was just too hot in Melbourne for me. And I decided... Not to, in Ireland, I got a pro- not too hot in Ireland. <laughs> no, 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 I came back there for that reason. But I'd been approached while I was away um, in Oz by uh, Danielle, who was the head of post in Brown Bag and about coming over. She, she'd heard about me because I used to work in um, Windmill Lane, which is probably one of the leading post facilities in, in Dublin and um, along with kind of screen scene, uh, Windmill Lane and Egg would be the three main ones. I kind of, I'd started in Windmill Lane a long time ago, but it's a smallish industry. Everybody knows each other, but uh, kind of took a year out after working in Windmill for about four years and I went to Oz and then kind of ended up doing a little bit of post and um, consulting over there for a recruitment firm that used to find people like, you know, grade ops and sound people for various productions of various things so that's what I was kind of working in but initially I had started out in um, Windmill but yeah so I came back there my kind of reservation was I'd never worked in animation at all and I, I'm not someone's kind of like I, I do believe in and I think a lot of our industry is like flagging it till you make it and just you know we've got about 20% of the right things to say you can usually pull the wool over people's eyes but with this um I, you kind of do need to have a bit of backup. So that would have been my reservation about starting a brown bag. like, I've never done that before. It's a different workload. There's so much to it. Like, and it's, it's a totally different animal to, you know, live television or um, TV dramas, which I kind of had work in when I started out. But um, yeah, it was a real, it was a brilliant learning curve as well. Uh, the shows there that you would have worked on and that I worked on as well, like big shows, like for the pre-scale market, so not many people, they don't get the, you know, the kudos maybe they deserve, but like they sell to maybe 160 countries and stuff like this, and they're a worldwide thing. Yeah. But 
so so I was keen, but I, I made that very clear when I came in. But I think what I learned is there's not many people that do post production in animation at the time. So it's kind of like even the fact that you have a little bit of information, then you kind of have a, an idea of how scheduling and workflows work. You're probably better than most that kind of doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what brought you over then to the UK from having worked um, at Brownback? What was what you know what was your first job? Did you come here having a job in line? Um, yeah, what was your well, reason? I worked in like I, I came out of college. I studied music management is what I studied initially, and um, I kind of studied that just purely because I was so into music and, and I enjoyed that side of things. Didn't really know what I wanted to do um, when I left school, so I, I was studying in Ballyferma College of Further Education, which is interesting because um, that's pretty much the main hub of um, animators and things coming out in Dublin and that's probably led to why there's such a huge industry in Dublin of animation companies and things working and um, there because that's where those colleges and schools are but uh, and the tax I, breaks <laughs> they definitely helped but yeah a lot more people are getting on to tax breaks now but um, at the time definitely you know the section 481 I think is that what it was called I came in, but while I was studying music management, I'd heard about this company called Windmill Lane. It's kind of famous in Dublin because they um, it used to be a recording studio in an old mill just down just down on the Keys, just close to the docks in um, Dublin. And it was kind of world famous because U2 had recorded their albums there. And it was kind right. of, so it's kind of a tourist spot where all the walls outside the windmill are completely covered in graffiti of people's messages to Bono. But, um, so I would have known of that and we would have studied it because I was studying music management. And for me, that was like, if I'm going to get a job in the industry, I'd like to work in Wimble Lane, even though probably at the time didn't really understand exactly what was going on in the building. But um, Wimble Lane, as, as it happens, I, I finished college, had actually transformed probably over the years since I'd been learning about it. That was no longer just a recording studio for music. It was actually a post-production house. So it's gone in, I think it's gone into, it's divided into, so they had moved recording studios down to, um, down to the docks in Dublin, still maintaining the name Window Lane. But then there was, um, there was the studio there as well, the, the famous studio that was the mill, and that was pretty much a post-production house for um, commercials, TV and film, and mostly like a lot of work on true. So obviously I was applying, I've seen that there's a, there was a website in Dublin where every single person that wants to work in the industry you kind of looked at this there'd be probably about 10 jobs on it like a little note was bored it was, it was the Irish Film and Television Network and yeah. literally every single person in, in college you check that every day to see what it was but then that also meant that everybody knew that so then everybody applied for the same jobs at the same time but five I, jobs I, but 500 people wanting this exactly exactly mm-hmm. but so I, I, was, I, I think I was working at Virgin Megastores at the time while I was in college and obviously music related in some way, but I was doing the cash office and kind of had a, I was managing a team there. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I I went away and I remember I was applying for a job that come up and they were looking for a production accountant in Windmill Lane. And I, I had no accountancy experience at all, but I had run a cash office in a shop and that was pretty yeah. much my, my goal. But then obviously, as we know, lots of um, lots of the the systems in our industry are always based on workflows and kind of computerized systems and stuff like that, you know, or scheduling systems. And I'd had kind of experience in version of working in using this thing called Elvis, which is an industry thing where it was a system for getting CDs in, what's selling, what's not, and, you know, monitoring okay. sales. So I would use that and I, would, I did the cash office. So I did have some kind of 
experience with money, we'll say. So yeah. I was okay. like, I, I can do that. I can do production accounting. So I, I, I think I had about four interviews actually for this job, which was kind of entry level. But eventually, I think it took about, I, took, I think it took something like seven weeks. And I think I was getting to the point where I was like, oh, I've had enough now. I'm not, you know, it's not going to happen. But got the job. And then, yeah, then I just started in Windmill and then soon learned that it was more um, about production of commercials. There's a huge commercial department in there. And, and then TV broadcast, mainly for the Irish market. And then there was a lot of films gone on as well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and for me, I was... I, I was the only person that was a little hub office in there of about eight um, post-production, we'll call them post-production producers in-house in Windmill. They all sat around and all the jobs would come in, people had their favourites and then they would be applied to the person that they thought was best. And But it was a real hub, really kind of like, you know, eight producers around me. I was the only person that wasn't a producer sitting in the corner just doing the accounts and doing the worksheets and the times and all that. Very mundane task, but it was really great just to kind of sit there and take it all in. And yeah, I was... So pretty much what I would do is when someone would be gone on holiday and they needed cover, I'd be like, I'll, I'll cover that. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. take over that. And then ultimately, just by doing that enough, um, yeah, got the experience where it's like, oh, should Dave can handle that one and or we'll give that job. And then kind of moved up to that I started doing my own job. And given that I was still on the low um, pay bracket, it kind of made a lot of sense. And I wasn't too bad at it. So it made a lot of sense to get me doing it. And then, um, then the financial crisis hit. In, and then there was a lot of layoffs and then all of a sudden it was like okay well we'll keep him because we pay him nothing <laughs> sorry this sounds really bad <laughs> but yeah it's what it it is. Kind of, I was supportive of people and then I got kind of a lot of opportunities so like so it was mainly at the start I would have done jobs for kind of a lot of the, like the Irish channels like RT1 and RT2 and then there's like this uh, an Irish station at home called TG Cahar and I would have done some stuff for that. But yeah, I kind of got experience just working in shows like uh, this uh, documentary series I made for TV3. I well, did the post on, it was called uh, The Truth About Travellers. And it was pretty interesting, just kind of like the other side of the travelling community and you know the bad name that they're painted with. So that would have been like one of the first ones that I did, did quite well. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I just led on to one job after the other before. So we're doing a lot of different things. But uh yeah, working in a post house is probably the best thing for me because you just get to meet all these different creatives and see how things work. Workflows at the time we were still doing like telecine, you know what I mean, and using the machines and stuff. So that was still so it's kind of like this amazing process of actually, you know, seeing how things work before it went completely digital. So it was just in at the end where it was still like digi beaters and that kind of the fun of finishing a program on a Thursday night and then getting in a cab on. Friday morning to make sure to bring a tape, yeah, literally broadcast for air that evening, you know, with a safe cost and stuff like that. So that's, yeah. that's pretty weird. There it is. So what? What? So what point were you in back? What, what? When were you in the UK? Then was oh, oh sorry, the UK. Let's get back to that question. So I think I left. I left Windmill. Then I went to Oz and did that consulting stuff. And then I was approached about coming back as a post super to work in um, Brown Bag, and that was down to a few people in Windmill. Um, knowing people working at Brown Bag and recommending me. I kind of, I think I was on, I was on the mindset that I was going to come back and uh, get back into work. And I suppose because I was so young at the time, I was a little bit like, you don't want to go away too long. That's, I, I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. Didn't want to be away from home too long and join Sunshine and, you know, just drink beers on the beach. Um, so I was keen to get back. And so uh, um, an editor I'd worked with, I think called Janice Toomey, um, new uh, head of post-production in Brown Bag. 
and she recommended me. So I did Skype calls, which just at the time aren't as good as this. That just didn't work. You couldn't hear anything. So I pretty much had an interview in, yeah, in, in, in this house in Melbourne and it was just crackled for the 15 minutes and then we all just gave up and I was like, but that was useless. But I got the job. That was great. <laughs> So, so far, okay. about three weeks, I was back in in Dublin, um, living in my parents' house again, which was a treat. And yeah, back in Dublin, and then I started on that Peter Rabbit series for Silvergate, where I met you, and yeah, I learned like loads of stuff. But what kind of was really helpful about that was, I suppose, was learning about kind of how VFX work and that kind of, and those you know those processes. Even though it wouldn't be identical to animation, there's similar ways of working and shotgun as a system for working. So. Yeah, and I'd been approached then, I, I'd done that series and I, I kind of wasn't keen to say too much. I was very keen to get back into live, live TV and, or not live TV, you know, drama. Uh, shooting drama and stuff like that. So I was kind of in that mindset. But um, I've been speaking to a couple of people here. Uh, there was one, there was a post um, producer here called Dee Collier, who I would have mentioned to you before, who was a friend of mine. And she had kind of been in touch with me. I'd met her when I was working in Windmill on a couple of shows. And she was like, would you be interested in coming over and maybe working with her? Kind of went by the wayside then. And, you know, it, it didn't happen the way she was planning. Um, but we kept in touch. And then I, I ended up, I signed up for another show with uh, Brown Bag. And it was, uh, it was as a production manager on that. And it was called Henry Huggle Monsters, which was for Disney. Yeah. And started doing that. And then I was probably like, it was, I'd say about eight months in that and then they came back and they um Dee was in touch again and she said that ITV were looking for somebody else. She couldn't do a job, a post-supervisor job that she wanted to do, but she couldn't do it because she was already booked up and would I be interested in interviewing? So I interviewed for um it was Jeff Pope's um Scylla and the Scylla Black biopic. So I interviewed with that um with a producer called Quadro Dejan, great guy. And yeah, so we've done a couple of interviews and got that job. And then it was really, really quick. Like within. I actually did a shot on that Scylla program. Yeah. What shot I was did. it? Uh, <laughs> I think I might have done two, actually. I was working for. Uh, I might have the effect, so I'd remember now, Craig. Which one was oh, it? Do you know Bruce Spill, Anthony Brownmore, and Al, Al Brownmore? Not I sure. I think they might no. have been, they might have been like down the line. I'm not entirely sure how they acquired the. The work. <laughs> we won't go into the hey, details. Manchester. No, no, uh, in, in Soho, uh, and they uh, probably been set up a few years. But um, yeah, I, I went and freelance for them, and they and they were just working on a few shots for that Scylla, and um, it was it was kind of making streets look like it was from the seventies and what have you. So getting rid of like you know modern street furniture okay. and what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. That's just yeah. I suppose that's what a lot of the thing is. Yeah, I'll take that job, and then you, yeah, it just goes out like it's yeah it's a branches small of the tree. Yeah, <laughs> didn't get any credit on it, unfortunately, though. So I assume because I remember that. No, I didn't get <laughs> one either. Never mind. Yeah, a lot of streets. Like, that when she went, it was there. I know there was like it was only a three. It was a mini series of three episodes, but it was um a lot of it was when she went to America. And she was she was working in New York and stuff. So I know that they were trying to make those um streets that they shot and never do a look. Um, like New York as well and adding stuff and then removing stuff so yeah there was a lot of that going on but yeah it was a great show though but it was like it, it was quite it was funny for me though like I'd come over and I, I'd done this I was really kind of it was only three episodes and you're coming from something where you had 52 episodes on the go at the same time but I was just so adamant like right, I'm gonna you know because it was, it was a new country just focus on that make sure that you know 
did the best possible job I could. But the experience on that was amazing. Like we, uh, it was, I, th- I think I was only about, I think I was about a month in the UK and then uh, we had books um Abbey Rose and it was full orchestra to go in record Silla tracks and it was Paul Whitting, brilliant director and it, the team of us and we were in, you know, you're in Abbey Rose and you wish Eric Smith, absolutely amazing singer, she's phenomenal, like, and they have the booth, this full orchestra, you're just down there, I was like, almost pinching myself, I was like, how the hell did I wangle this one? <laughs> such a brilliant experience and I was like well if this is what it's like making tv shows in the UK I think I'll hang around but it was only ever supposed to be I'd come over and I'd do one show and potentially go back I think I, I wasn't planning on st- you know staying at, well the, at the time it wasn't stick around and mm. see what happened but yeah so I did that show it went down really well it was kind of we worked in tech technicolor and did the picture and it Jumbo uh, did the sound and really great group of people on, in both things. Yeah, I think it looked really well. It was directed well and yeah, the acting was good. So it was, it was a lovely first, you know, project to introduce yeah. myself. Of. And that was well. how many years ago now? So if you're only going to be here for a one one show and you've been here since, how long ago was that? Six years now, yeah. Six so years. Six years, Ooh. yeah. Blown. Um, but yeah, I think it was, I had a really good experience. I to be seemed happy at the end of it and then I really quickly I got um asked to do a show called Home Fires um mm-hmm. for um I met a producer an exec producer called uh, Catherine Oldfield a good friend of mine now but uh, she was doing this show we met we got along so pretty much as soon as Silla finished went on to that um and yeah I think uh, or in the interim I may have done I've done a film then um called The Eichmann Show which Technicolor because I mean it was actually I've been working with tech and uh they were finding it difficult at the time, which is not so much now because there's so many PPSs. They were finding it difficult to find a PPS. And I was kind of apprehensive about doing it because given I was just here, I, I PPS wasn't... PPS is post-production supervisor, right? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So they were looking for a post-production supervisor for that as well. I was a little apprehensive about doing it because I didn't want to stretch myself because I think we're just in the uh, the end of delivering Stilla. But it was more just because it was, you know, your first gig here. You want to make sure that you're around and for everybody. But I ended up, they asked me a couple of times and I did that. So I did that film. That that went really well as well. So quite quickly, I suppose, in the space of six months, I had two credits under my belt here. And yeah. um, then I did Home Fires. We did two series of that back-to-back. And then then I, then I interviewed for a series called The Last Kingdom, which is still going now. It's four series. So I did that for, um, that's on Netflix now, four series. And um, so just done, I did the four series. That, that, was a, that was a juggernaut of a series, which was mm. really weird put me teeth over here huge vfx budget i think at the time was bbc one's biggest um budget they'd ever had on a vfx show but um as i said working in brown bag kind of helped me because i understood the, the workflow and what was achievable i wasn't making a schedule that wasn't got, you know oh but how all the vfx i kind of knew what went in and what time the monitoring that needed you know carnival were brilliant they were really involved so and and um, we did it. We did the VFX for that series. We're done in Blue Bolt, and they were pretty much they were on it. We had like weekly reviews. We went in and signed it. the execs and um, Nigel Martins and, um, and and the team there. They'd go in. They would sit down and sign everything off. So you kind of had a clear understanding of where you were at with that. But yeah, so just kind of led on from there. So that's pretty much ended here. So what um, what is a so for those that uh, aren't in the post world at all? What what is a post supervisor? What what's your like daily 
or by the project job? What, 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 how do you see it through? You start from the beginning of a production in pre pre production, or when do you get it? When do you get involved? Well, it, it varies, I suppose. Like, um, see, it's different actually. To in, in Ireland, when I worked in the post house, there there wasn't like the it would be a very anomaly of having a, a post production supervisor working on a TV show over there. Um, the person in house, so me, whoever's assigned by the post production facility, they would act as the post production supervisor. They would oversee that. So it was kind of like, but in the UK, I suppose maybe the bigger shows and bigger budgets and stuff, and more VFX and stuff like that would mean that you'd have a freelance person typically doing that role. So I suppose that role um, is, it's, uh, I suppose, two things mainly. It's scheduling, keeping everything on time, keeping the ticking over, and uh, so scheduling and budget. It's managing budget and people. Um, so the idea behind the post super is you kind of, you, you start out, you do your budget, you do your schedule, you know when things have to happen, when it has to happen in, in order for us to move along. There's kind of like key points. So it's, it's a scheduling system and everybody has different ways of doing it. But it's monitoring kind of VFX, sound, picture and kind of and delivery. And I think they're, they're the four key components of it. But making sure all those different um, components work together so that you have something to present. Like there's no point in going to a sound mix if your VFX aren't in because the sound design is, you know, needs the sound in there in, in order for the VFX to be able to be signed off. But it's about knowing those things and also just keeping people on board because you'll find that the producer has so many different things to be thinking about the the overall from, you know, clearances to, to actors, to dealing with directors and finance. Um, so they don't have time. So they need somebody that's pretty much, it's, it's quite techy as well. You need to, you don't need to be the most technical person in the world, but you need to have an understanding that you're not asking a crate of something that's in unachievable you know what i mean it's quite broad actually isn't it you're covering audio you're covering vfx you're covering the edit and there's a lot of different creative skill sets within that that are all off on their own channels that you've got to oversee i guess yeah so it's no it's like it's known enough you know what i mean you never want to come across as um you know arrogant either about kind of like my way or the highway because one thing you learn is that you know the person that like your grader is always going to know more about picture than you so you're not going to go in and start you know throwing your balls around the room and just kind of acting like you know more do you want because that's their that's their creative role and that's what they know but it's about working with people and getting the information and then also kind of just keeping everybody updated on what's achievable the huge thing is ADR as well so ADR um, is the dialogue replacement that we do on most shows a lot of people wouldn't realize that you know the sound that's recorded on set generally will be tweaked after or there'll be lines that will need to be done for sound or like even as we're talking here now you're saying to me earlier on like this you know, an ambulance going up the road every five minutes. You might need to remove that because that would take away from things. So you might need to record a lot of lines. So that's 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 something that a post uh, post supervisor would do as well, where you have to book the actors via their agents. Could be if it's a huge cast, it's quite an undertaking. But there's a time frame. In other words, on our bike. Uh, there's a time frame for for that to be done. So, so you need all the audio in order to you know. It's ideally you need all your all the audio settled and in and mixed for your premix. So yeah. um, your premix, you can, you can drop stuff in for your final mix, but with, that's where on the final mix, people come in and sign off the actual audio and say they're happy with all the elements. But yeah, like, but that, that'll be done in blocks. So if you have a six, ep- you know, if you have six episodes, you might do three blocks of two episodes and then yeah. you're booking. And, you know, you could get an actor that's traveling the world that's really hard to get 
get in. Well, I was going to say, actually, I mean, you must you must get to meet and um, you know entertain quite a lot of um, the highbrow. <laughs> that is the thing. Like, it's kind of like that's one of the. I think you were saying to me before, like, what's, what would you say are the perks? The perks are like the, the people that you get to meet. Like, I've been so lucky. Sometimes you don't even realize you're in a room and it's not just actors actually it's like sometimes you're working with a director that's just so brilliant and mm. you know it, 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 it's a real it's a real privilege to be able to sit in a room and see how somebody works and yeah you know and how they create something that's um you know is going to speak to people and like you get to meet people sometimes you can be let down by the people you meet and um, when it comes to actors like that you're a bit like oh god i touch house with this person but like as a whole i've been so lucky like i'm friendly with some of them i remember you cutting me short because you were having to go back to glenda jackson who you'd left hanging at a table that, 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 was, that was one of the kind of i think even for like my parents or kind of speaking to um, people just she was the first um is an octogenarian i'd ever worked with and uh probably as everybody had said on 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 set and everyone that worked her a complete and utter pro, but you kind of don't realize the caliber of this person. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. she'd obviously stopped for a while to become a Labour MP, so a woman of many talents, but uh, yeah, absolute professional, really amazing. But um, yeah, just standing outside with this person, she was coming in for ADR and she didn't have a mobile phone, so um, we, I'd call her on her landline and, you know, we just, she meant business. She'd be there. She'd be up before everybody else. Like to use, you know, she likes to go out for a cigarette. And that's how I got to chat with her. I'd have a cigarette with her, but just an out and out class act. But yeah, hmm. like that. Um, I don't know. I, as I was saying to you before, I, I I got to work in Jumbo, which was I went in house for about three years recently. You were um, the director, uh, director of director of operations about three years ago. They approached me. I'd worked on kind of they'd done Scylla initially, so I met the the team in there, a small boutique facility. I met them all, had lovely experience working with them. And then we done The Last Kingdom. And um, so I, we kind of had, so they approached me about doing that. But like during that time, they're, you know, some serious talent, like because coming through the doors, like, you know, we they did Fleabag um, series one and two, Afterlife as well. So you'd have Ricky in and but all these kind of, you know, to meet people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and, and just to see these people with a real, real hub of talent coming through the door. So, yeah, really lucky. But, uh, yeah, you don't want to get too starstruck. I think it, sometimes it does become a bit of a job. But every now and again, I think the Glenda Jackson thing for me would have been a bit like, you know, this is someone like this wow. is a legend. You know, yeah. well, but, Don't say yeah. something that's going to offend. <laughs> that's yeah, not, that's but, never but, been a worry for you, though, is it? <laughs> Oh no, I, I, you know, I'm very, very sweet and shy and reserved most of the time, Craig. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I take a few drinks to loosen up. But uh, no, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of professional when it comes to dealing with people. Cheers again. Yeah. No. So, so you say um, the like with the budget because you're overseeing the post budget, right? So you've already, uh, I guess, uh, agreed what the post budget is going to be with the producer at at maybe pre production stages. Well, I think so. There'd be kind of like, I suppose, with a lot, like, let's say, for example, with a lot of the ITV shows that I would have done, they'd have an understanding of how much it roughly takes to make, let's say, a six part series. They have, yeah. they have production executives in there that, um, you know, that's their job is to find the people and to, you know, monitor the money. But what I would kind of do is, um, we'd have a general idea figure, but it would start with quotes. So I'd probably throw out. That you know, you go, you throw out the quote to the various facilities, get all that stuff back, have a look, and then 
using the quote, you'd build, you'd build an overall post budget. And, but then obviously you have to take into account things like the studio hire for, for the ADR. Uh, have to, you'd have a budget for VFX, but like, even though I, I would read the scripts of something that I'm working on and kind of, I'd have an idea where we're going to need VFX here. They haven't started shooting yet. You don't know what's going to come up and you don't know what the, what's going to happen on set on the day, what the light's going to be like and, or how experienced um, people on set are, you know what I mean? Like it's, like there's a reason why there's VFX supervisors sent to set from on big shows for days and stuff like that. But it can't like, you know, they can only advise, you know, when you have a group of people on set, it's not necessarily going to go exactly the way you want it to go because different things and different variables will happen on the day. That So you kind of have to have a little bit of an idea of kind of you could overspend. Sometimes I, I, I like to err inside of caution when I'm doing something just to have a little bit more money. I, I prefer to go back and say that you didn't spend a certain amount of money but you're recovered and then you can use that money to go into a different section yeah. of the well it's it's not unheard of that by the time it gets to post the budget is kind of like for production <laughs> it's like just grown and grown and grown and then you're you're given the yeah we said this much for the for the post but actually like because we had to get this particular camera in with this particular lens and this particular cast member uh we've yeah. only got this much now so it's kind of um how in the long form drama world uh how strict is well, that's, that's a common, like I, i've had i'm not going to start naming things but i've worked on shows like and the budget that i would have thought i was working to is just not the case by the time because of overspends or a location that seemed so you know integral to the show was was somebody cost 50 grand or 60 grand more than what they you know that's what it's a deal it's a bidding war and you know so you kind of do sometimes you do feel a bit like the poor brother at the end of it where it's kind of like oh but like how am i supposed to you know how much how am i supposed to deliver it now thankfully it's built on relationships with post facilities where they will work with you and if you bring work to a lot of people they'll they'll do you a favor and and you kind of have to do call in who's your mates and who's not and you know what i mean but you know people understand that but at the same time i, I, I like it's kind of the post supervisor role for me would be a bit of a middle ground between a production company and a facility it's not about kind of making sure that a post facility has to be hammered down on price and deal with the ones because that's just not fair. And it also means that you're not going to get the best product. I'd be kind of more, let's find an even ground. Let's, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And, and that's, that's important. But there's no point in kind of getting a, a bottom of the barrel um, quote from someone or for someone to say, no, I'll do that for nothing because the show's on screen. You know what I mean? And all the money that they spent in production, if the post finish isn't good on it, it's kind of a waste of money. You want, you want as much of the money on screen as possible. And it's just about working with good people and, you know, people that know what they're doing. I think that's, that's the key thing. Cause, and it's also, you don't want to be insulting people. You know what I mean? If you want to work with the best grader, if you want to work with the best mixer and you want to do those things, you don't hammer them down in price. And I suppose in the given market, there's so much work out there. I know it's on hold at the moment and it's kind of, but generally it is ramping up that there's a lot of work there that facilities can be working on. We're working, well, we're not working. We kind of miss the coronavirus, just in case someone's listening to this in about six months' time and wondering why there's no work about at the minute. That'll be why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there is work going on, but it's probably what has been already shot. So yeah, I think that's what we there, what we found is that a lot of the stuff that's already been, like you say, has been shot. A lot of the facilities set up um, remote and sent all their staff home with the kit, uh, and all the all the post houses in particular were sharing um, their posts on LinkedIn. Look, there's here's Brian and here's Sarah. She's at home, cup of tea. 
yeah. looking cash, you know, uh, that lasted about a week, I think, until I stopped seeing the Zoom call uh, screenshots and the uh, posts of people at home. I think the work kind of, as soon as they finished off what they needed to do, I don't think anything else new came in. And if it did, it, was, it wasn't getting promoted very well. Um, I, I hear you. And like, I, I was probably a little bit unfortunate because I, I had just finished. I, I finished in Jumbuk in December. So I, I left there and it was always a plan like that I would do two or three years because I do enjoy being freelance and having, you know, I, I like working from project to project and things as well. So I, I finished that and then I was trying to bide my time to get something that I really wanted to work on. And I had a couple of options and I literally had got uh, a job that I was really, really, really excited about. There was lots of um, interviews for with uh on stateside and here and it was shooting here and it was all good to go and yeah went through jumped through all the hoops got the job couldn't believe uh, that i was going to get to work on this uh series which i'm not allowed to speak about um because randy would up to our eyeballs but um hasn't been announced so we're getting i had literally i was confirmed 24 hours later went on high eights and i was just like okay so yeah it's, but that it's, job it's, will hopefully come in in the future well, that's the plan, but the, the the issue that you have is though the technicalities because it was an American um, production shooting in UK. You do wonder if they might. It may seem like you know, with the plans that you're going to have to put in place in order to do a shoot here, it's gonna it's gonna cost more money. It's gonna have to. You know what I mean? You're gonna have to keep you know, maybe skeleton staff. You're gonna. It's not everyone's. It's gonna have to be kind of a monitoring room where maybe producers and execs are gonna have to sit in a in a room and watch a live stream of monitors from set as opposed to being on set. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's going to be this hidden cost there and it's going to cost money. But then it, I suppose it does boil down to, is it, I, I don't want to be putting them off because I really want to come back, but is it going to be, can you down to do that? Or could we just pull the whole thing back to America where everybody is mm. and do it there? It's not, it's not looking know. too good in America though, to be fair at the moment. <laughs> and, and not that I want to get any worse there, but I hope we get better quicker so that we can kick off and get, you know, get moving. But uh, yeah, so that, that's the weight game we're playing now. Uh, so what, um, what do you think you've seen change in, like, in the industry since when you first started to, to the now? I mean, obviously you're working on some like, really great big dramas now. All right. Do you think anything much has changed you know, since your first early days in those dramas and then, you know, even when you're back at Windmill Lane or is or is the system still very much the same? Because obviously we are set up, we're set up as virtual. We're trying to get as many yeah. uh, jobs to be worked on remotely as possible, which is quite convenient with the coronavirus because um, that works well. But there's still big post houses in the centre of London. Um, a lot of production is still in the centre of London. And obviously coming from Ireland, um, you know, you're not a, you're not a man from London, from the beginning, um, is it London where all the work is, or how do you how do you see from the, well, from from then to now? How has it changed, and what do you think? Well, the, like, the thing about it like? is, as an industry, as an industry, in my opinion, it's it's constantly evolving. I think the actual um, speed of you know the change in the industry is ramped up, so it's it's changing like every few months now, as opposed to it used to be like you know I I, I remember when they rolled out HD cam tapes and that's what we were, people were working on they were working on that stuff and that's what we were delivering on and then it went i think in the uk and ireland actually i remember we were on hcam sr tapes yeah that was a step they kind of came out but they were still making hcam but the states were still hdcam so when we'd be making a tv show we do our hdcam srs for the uk and ireland broadcast but then you'd have a hdcam that would be sent over for the ultimate american broadcast but 
you know, obviously that was still tape format and that's not that long ago. Like I'm still quite young. We're quite young. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're, so, young. we're young. Yeah, we're young. We still got it. Um, yeah. but, I remember HD yeah. Cam and Beta Cam and uh, an SR. I think the BBC would only allow you to deliver on SR. They wouldn't accept any other format for a, for a while. It's yeah, expensive yeah, that's, that's tape. It. Very yeah, expensive. Was, yeah. But then they haven't, we've been through our trials and tribulations with the tapes as well, because if you remember, um, there was the tsunami that hit Japan. Yeah. And that, so then um, all of a sudden these tapes that probably cost about 130 quid each um, were gone for 500 quid. So it was like that. Yeah, yeah. It was like toilet roll. It yeah. was like it had a few hasty counts. You could make money. Who cares about making posts or making television? Just sell your tapes if you had a decent amount. You were loaded, you know. But to be so, fair, if you set up a t- if you take set up a tape distribution company back then, I mean, you're not making any money now. <laughs> no, no, but uh, yeah, no. I like think about it is as I say, the, the workflows are changing, and that has always been something in our industry. I do think, like, and as as you say, like the the genesis of your company is about working remote and not needing these things and what you can do. And so it's, that's always been possible. I think what coronavirus probably has just done is brought that to the forefront that it's actually possible. There is people that are also, I, I'm not taken away from a facility though as well, because I think there is something about walking in to the center of town, sitting in a room and signing off your grade. Um, and there is the sense of, you know, when you're in a room and you see it, but also you're seeing it on a calibrated monitor, uh, yeah. you know, in a, in a studio, there is that. But what we've had to do is people have had to adapt now. And that's not the case. Not everybody's going to have a calibrated monitor in their house that so they know that what they're seeing is not exactly what finished product, um, not the, the, what finished product in the studio will be. So I think people are going to have to relax. Like there's a lot of people, that doesn't look like what, a, what I thought it was. No, it, you, you sign it off to the best of your ability in the studio. It's going to be transmitted in so many different um devices and different things that it's going to be encoded differently so you know what i mean like even the dolby vision they you, you have your standard there and then what happens is you put your metadata in and then when it's, it goes to the actual device the device picks up what it is and then finds what's the best um best way of showing this so it's never going to be the same but um but at I least if what, everyone's in the same room looking at the same monitor and all agree that it's right the that it was that's that's as good as it can be that is it, it, what we wanted to be now the you know the television sets that are out now that are so good that it's not that far off and so it, i think that's the thing and it, you know even to with the grading situation now where you would do your hdr grade now and but you would do it you used to when it came out you do a separate sdr grade so there are two separate entities so you tweak them but i think now what it is is i think dolby vision are doing it where you know you do your hdr grade and it's kind of like you know using the information that's in that file they can create an SDR and they can kind of go in and just do a check on it as opposed to having to do a full grade and stuff but yeah I think that's kind of coming more to the forefront at the moment where there's going to have to be some flexibility in what you're seeing and understanding because that's where we're going to sign it off also people are probably enjoying the fact that they can sit at home and an exec can watch you know three different shows back to back on their television at home have an idea give their notes they'll be applied but it's going to have to be a lot more faith in your DOP in your grader in your director, well, it, takes, you know? it also means that um, people are less tied to, I suppose, being in town till 10, 11 o'clock at night most nights. If there's an opportunity, if, I think the, the problem was there was always, um, well, there is, should I say, uh, a stigma that you know, you're going to work late, you're going to sit there late in the studio and no one's allowed to leave until the final say-so. Whereas I feel like now yeah. maybe people can appreciate that actually, yeah, okay, I can... I can sign that off from home now. And that means that that yeah. person also doesn't have to sit and get the last train back. Um, but it, 
it's also a false economy, if you ask me, because like obviously working in a studio where, and like obviously I, I worked in the studios for years where we would do this, and it would be like you'd have the, you know, you'd have the runner there at three o'clock in the morning running to get, you know, food for people because you have to sign it off. And I think it was like, oh, we, we said we finished on that day, but that's not the case anymore. And the issue is if you have a mixer or if you have a grader in your Keaton, they're like, they're tired, they're hungry, they're disgruntled. The work is not going to be the same. You're better off just sometimes calling it, calling it a day and saying, right, fine. Or even allowing that person to go home, let them, you know, give notes, let them do the notes and then come in and do a two hour session. Those two hours are going to be way more fruitful than, you know, people sitting there till all hours a night um, trying to make a decision on something. But well, I do, do you think... So do you find that when you're um, when you're working on a project, uh, you know, I imagine you'll work on a project, you'll have a little breather, and then you'll work onto a, on another project. If I'm yeah. right, or maybe you're just rolling from one to the other, and you get absolutely zero sleep. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, you know, um, do you find uh, the working day is actually is manageable on a project, or you know, do you do you do you try and keep to the the typical nine till six kind of rules, or do you find yourself just working all day and night on the project? I, like, I, I, like, by nature, I'm somebody that's probably, and uh, I sound like I'm doing a sales pitch to future producers here, and I'm saying this, but by nature, I'm nosy, and I want to keep abreast of things, and if something's not going right or if we're behind on something, it would be something that would play on my mind that I'd be thinking of. So I, I never worked, the, I, I probably probably always worked more hours than was the norm. Um but I, I, I kind of, I, I've always been very structured. Like there's one thing, if you know, like a lot of, with, with this job, if you know you have no meetings at one o'clock, in theory, you could have a bit of a line in the morning and work late that day. You have the flexibility of being a freelancer. I never really did that. I'm kind of someone that I like to get up in the morning and I would generally head in, even if I don't have something, I sit outside the edit suite so that I'm available, that if the shit does hit the fan for whatever reason, I'm there as opposed to getting a call, you know, sitting there. I was just say sitting there getting my hair done, but obviously that's not something. Sitting um, somewhere, and yeah. having a point or something, and then you're kind of, I, I like to be around. But yeah, I, I, I think it will give more flexibility, kind of. Or also, the fact that people are being kitted out more now means that you kind of come home and, like, I, I'd often, I, I could leave, you know, Soho at five, we'll say, miss Rush or get home, and then do an upload, and then, you know, kick an upload off at home, make dinner while the uploads are yeah. doing that sort of stuff. So yeah, there is flexibility with the role, but yeah. It depends on the person, you know, if you're doing two jobs at the same time and if one is in the States and one is here, be prepared that you're going to be working a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But then we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't love the industry, right? I don't know. That's the thing. One of the beautiful things. I I do love it. I really do love my (laughs) job. Like I I, I enjoyed working in Jumbuck in-house again. And it was, I think for me, what was really, um, Beneficial for me was we were um, Jumbo from one of the first people in um, Soho to roll out Dolby Atmos. So while I was working there as an operational manager, it was right, we're, we're here. And I got to learn that I got to see things with some people that really know their stuff and they rolled out. And I learned that on the job. And I, like, as I said before, working in Brown Bag, I learned about the effects and the animation side of things. I, I got experience in lots of, so kind of by going in house and doing that and focusing on something for a while. You learn it and then it's kind of, it's another string to your bow and it makes you more all-rounded when it comes to um, working on a show as a freelancer. But yeah, I, I, I do love it. But then one of the lovely things about this industry, as you'd probably know as well, people like to have a drink and it's kind of when you have this kind of pressure and you have these kind of deadlines on you, 
we do get to go out and people like to go and we you know there's always a nice you know rock parties they're 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 a nice thing and there's always some really interesting people that you can go for a pint in soho as well that's a lovely thing about soho it's filled with bars as well as post facilities do you know what i mean is it oh, i didn't realize that <laughs> you know what you're just yeah. so serious i know like i never get you yeah. out for a pint it's it's all right it's all right you know i mean soho obviously is full of bars but when you're the guy sitting on at the desk with like four or five like you know execs behind you (laughs) you're not allowed to you you don't get to enjoy that bit you just can't wait to get on the train get home and sleep and then get up (laughs) the next day to do exactly the same thing again you know you just you just please if the runner could just ask me if i also would like a beer that would be nice (laughs) yeah yeah i took a bit of time off at the start of the year before I took that job and I'd obviously been interviewing for other things and speak to people but um I, I would never and like, like even you know when they do on Friday they do they like to come around with a drink or a cocktail or whatever in the facility I never have that I kind of work is work it's 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 when I walk out of the facility then yeah. it's like yeah go for your life but I never have a drink I don't know I can't I just don't associate them because I I'd be cross-eyed in a glass of wine sitting there at my laptop and I'm like I would just send an email with the wrong information so I'm not risking it until I'm on my own time thank you i had an interview about half 11 um there a few months ago and i yeah so it was grand and but well, i'm not working i'm off like i'm just interviewing and i was seeing people so i had the interview then i decided to while well, i was up in holborn so i decided to slowly walk into town so i got into town about i think about half 12 and then i was supposed to meet a mate of mine at two and I was like, it's half 12. I was like, can I have a pint at half 12? And I was like, God, it's early and everyone else is in work. And I'm like, oh, I might just have one dodgy, I might have a pint of Guinness. I hadn't been drinking and I was so sitting outside, went to the bar and I literally, as soon as I put the thing down, I didn't even realise I was sitting in the window. Pretty much half the industry, everybody just walking by and there's David trying to find Looks like the best job in the world. Trying to explain to people, no, I, I'm not working, I'm actually on holidays, but yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a fine angry. line in Soho, isn't it? Fun and, fun and work. It's- yeah. kind of on each other's doorsteps it is my favorite pair of London that I absolutely do Soho I really do yeah yeah, yeah. just place yeah, and stuff that goes on there all the little bars and stuff and you're always meeting people it is kind of it's very family oriented in there as well we bumped into each other in a pub sorry we bumped into each other in a pub I think um, you yeah. were with Sarah Mooney in the Mason's Arms up Great Portland Street I think absolute double neg yeah, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen you for I ages, haven't seen you for years, probably since Ireland. And then I'm like, David? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's how it happens. <laughs> yeah, here we are. <laughs> it's like, it's a big place. Like, there's what? There must be nearly 10 million people in this city. Like, and yeah, we're going to yeah, start nine, meeting. Yeah, but, but 9.9 million go home at the end of it. And if you're the one in the pub at, <laughs> after, like, after hours, um, yeah, it becomes a really small place. Well. I remember, well, like, it does. I remember thinking like I've just seen this person like every day for like the last week we're getting the same tube like we're getting the same tube from the same station at the same time and you you start to think actually if you take away all the tourists you've got like quite a small core amount of people that have their routine that you're part of and you realize actually it is quite a small place um, and quite weird I mean I mean there's nothing more um, I think brilliant than bumping into somebody you know in Soho because it always feels like you shouldn't like yeah, this place yeah. is too big for us to have bumped into each other, but we have like it's but it, the romance. Like, it, of it, all. The romance. it is romantic, but it's dangerous as well. Like I remember, I remember being in uh, the Shaston Arms, that little pub just off Carnaby Street, which is known. And like I was sitting there, and I think I'd just taken on a project, and the execs that hadn't even met me yet were there talking about the project. 
Ooh. But in the inside, <laughs> you know, and how top secret it was. But I'm a bit like, I know it's top secret because I've just signed up with these two. And I know what they're talking about. But then there's execs from, the, you know, from IT, you know, ITV as opposed to BBC are in the pub as well inside. So you need to be very careful. The walls have ears, you know what I mean? Very small. Very small hell, What's um what's it like uh, working for like the likes of ITV and the BBC? Because are they, are they have they got a presence on a project, or um, is it mainly left up to the production company that you're you're working for? I think ITV are kind of broken up into a lot of um, individual um, production companies now. Is the way they've kind of done it. I work to ITV a lot, and to be honest, I'd be really thankful to ITV because I like I, I'd like to think I've done a good job with them. So they generally do approach me even though it might be the producer approaching me they'd recommend me which is quite nice and I've had you know the production execs Gail Kenna at the time when I started and Judy Burnell I really really fond and respect those women and they've always been really good to me but uh yeah so they kind of have they've kind of like silver print media and tall stories or um or two of their companies so they they kind of break it up now where they're quite they, work, they have their own slate and they work for themselves. So they each have an exec. Um, I've worked at Catherine Oldfield, which you would have done a bit of work on the Bay with recently. Mm. I've worked with Catherine a lot. She's brilliant to work with. And, you know, um, so you kind of, yeah, you get to meet a lot of different people. It, yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I actually love the Beeb. Like, it, some people, I, BBC have kind of, they have an in-house delivery person um, that you kind of deal with there. So you kind of, when you start up, you get this kind of setup kit from them with kind of all the information about what you need about like clock numbers and all those sort of things and they're really responsive and you know um itv um i enjoy working with because they kind of have those various departments for your sound clearance or music clearances they have people there they have all the different departments that you can kind of contact and you know so there is support there you know you're not going to like i've worked on things where you're completely at sea on your own you have to make a decision the production company might be a new production company or an independent that hasn't got that many shows under their belt sometimes that could be that could be a challenge and that's where you learn kind of stuff mm. about clearances and all so that sort of stuff. lots of lots of like technical elements to your like your, your role um you know understanding technical uh, elements and, and 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 workflows but what about uh creativity right because you're a very creative character uh, yeah. and we're in a creative industry um does your role allow for creativity would you say well it does, it does sometimes like there's um like even i suppose when I, i've worked on things before where you're like given right i've worked um i've worked in animation and animation the, the genesis of animation is sound like it's you, know, you make your sound bed and you, you might you have your script and then your sound so the actual animation is built around the audio so that's the first thing you record is your radio play for an animation so sound is really really key to that so that would be something that i would have learned when i was there and the huge experience working with like uh dave mccamony which i i don't know if you would have maybe met him he was the director on peter rabbit but brilliant guy like that was involved with the Lion King back in the day and states and comes to, back to Dublin. He's an Irish guy, but learned a lot um, um, about audio while I worked there. And then obviously I've just worked in a sound studio with brilliant mixers and a small team of really, really good, talented people. So I've always been kind of like that. But what I would find is sometimes I know people through that. And if you're working with somebody that that might be there, people have different strengths and weaknesses. So sometimes you would be let lead, you know, that way I've worked on things because of my understanding of VFX, where the director might even be like, um, I'd obviously go along to the things, but it was kind of, can you go, or if they're not happy with something, can, can you just translate for them what they want? Because they don't have the technical 
word power or they don't have the understanding to be able to tell the person what they want. They might have the vision, create a vision. So sometimes you can, you can get, you know, opportunities to, um, yeah, give your say and have a bit of input. And I think that's kind of fun when you kind of sometimes, or you might make a suggestion for something and then they go with that. And you're like, oh, I yeah. did that. That's, really, that, that's quite yeah. nice. That was mine. But yeah, I think it's opening up a lot more. As I kind of get more experience as well, um, you know, I, I, I've been approached about post-producer role, which is pretty much a similar thing, but you might have a team underneath you where it's a post-supervisor would be um, below you and then a coordinator. But the post-producer would have a lot more say um, on creative decisions. Um, uh, the job that I just got recently, I, I kind of had spoken to the production companies in, and the studios in America, and they were a little lot more keen for what was my understanding of this? Would I be able to guide this? Because with the way shows are working, the American model is a little bit different where they have a showrunner and they'll come in. So all the directors and um, they're not necessarily around for post. So they need to know that they have someone that maybe that they can communicate their vision to as well and know that you're going to help guide that when they're not around to do that. But then you also have more decision making to be made. More pressure, but again, yeah, it's, it's more fun. Um, if you could give your um, past self any advice, oh, that's a good question. What would it be? If you, you know, you coming out of the Virgin Megastore on the way to the windmill, what advice would you give yourself now? I don't think I'd fail this, but if I give it, it's, sometimes it's about learning when to shut up. Like, there's nothing more embarrassing when you have a team of really talented people in a room and the work experience kid decides to give a note. And that happens a lot. And it's like, <laughs> quiet. You have too much to say for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Have a bit of respect for people as well. But it also, it's not, don't get like, maybe not even me. If I was to give people trying to get into the industry some advice, it would be don't get ahead of yourself. So, like, people are like, oh, I'd love to do your job. But yeah, you have to do do the time. You know what I mean? If you, you learn about like working in a facility, seeing the downfall and seeing the different things that can go wrong. So, if you kind of have to do your time in this industry, like, before you can just be like, I'm a post production supervisor, you can't supervise something if you don't understand the nuts and bolts of it but i think key thing for me is um it's all about personality really 70 70 of this is about the way you interact the way you treat people because if you, if you act like an arsehole no one's going to work with you again or want to work with you. it doesn't matter how good you are you know what i mean so the people yeah. that i remember are the nice people and if they're talented at the same time that's just great but you know what i mean <laughs> if they're not we'll help them along and post that's why we do we'll fix it in post you know yeah yeah perfect <laughs> So you've set up as uh, Jealous, Jealous Limited. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a huge amount of, uh, there's nothing really thing. It kind of, th- it actually does sound a bit hilarious when um, I had a job and I've set up a company self-employed this year called Jealous and then the job is on IA. It's like, what's to be jealous of? I'm not working at the moment. But now that's just more, that's been, I used to be, uh, I think I used to be David, David E. O'Brien post-production and then closed that company down went into Jumbuck and then obviously I had to set up a new name and I was just a joke. It was, it was, it's actually just an in-joke with me and my mate kind of like, you know, so if I say to my mate, like my mate Peter, I'd be like, oh, oh you're looking a bit worse for wear there. How many drinks have you had? He'd be like, jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just something that we say to each other. I think we actually appropriated from, there was a, there's a theater show called uh, Briefs, which is all these acrobatic gay men wearing heels and all this sort of stuff. Uh, from Oz and it's brilliant but they have a thing where they always just say jealous to each other and I think maybe that so it's been in my head for years but we we do this all the time and it was pure I was just in a bar and I was talking about what they call this company when I set it up 
And uh, I, I can't, I'm known to say that, obviously, and I say yeah. things like I, I call people silly a lot. And we were like silly post-production. I'm like, it doesn't really have jealous <laughs> post-production. Yeah. So we looked up jealous when it was available. And it used to be a media company when I looked it up in the history of it, but it had just closed down. And I was like, literally just Having that. <laughs> available. So I'll have that. Yeah. I'll have that. But yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing my... Uh, my logo for me, great. <laughs> no problem. I won't no get problem. into nuts and bolts of nuts and bolts of um, various <laughs> options, but uh, we, yeah, there we went there creatively, didn't we? we? We took a creative journey on that, yeah. It was <laughs> uh, so yeah, you can follow Dave at, at Jealous it's Muted, Jealous LTD yeah, on Twitter, yeah. Well, fab talking to you, matey, and uh, I'll see you soon, hopefully. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. Thank you, David. And thank you to you for making it this far. Uh, really is appreciated. If you'd like to leave any comments or messages, please do so wherever you can find a way of doing so. And we'll be back again for another episode of The Production Pod. Mm-hmm.